Radio in South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Long and the Short of It. It feels like forever since we've been with you. Dale, how's it? All good, thank you. All good, yeah. Nice to be back around the podcast fireplace as we talk to... A man that, when he played well, was a South African, <laughs> and when he played badly, was a Zimbabwean. Zimbabwean absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Nick Price. And Dale, like so many of the people we speak to on the podcast, you and Nick go way, way back. We do. I first met Nick Price when he was still at school. In fact, if I'd been clever, I probably would have been at school as well. That's how long ago it was. But, you know, he had a, he had a very brisk and a very efficient goal swing, even at the age of 17 or 18. And it was a no-brainer that he was going to become a really successful player. How successful he's been, I don't think anybody could have realised. He's uh, He really has been hugely successful in the game of golf, but it's what he's done all around the game as well that's made him very special. Say no more? Well, actually, we have to say a little bit more because this podcast is brought to you by Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate. Dill, tell us about yeah, them because they're the new host uh, of the SA Open. The new host of the SA Open, Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate, the ultimate and secure Luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. Located just three kilometers from Lanseria Airport in Johannesburg, Blair has it all. World-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness center, spa and restaurant facilities. On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanseria Smart City. So why not visit BlairAthel.coza and take the first steps in creating your dream home. Come home to Blair Athel, an unparalleled living experience. They are the sponsors of The Long and the Short of It, and today we speak to Nick Price. Well, he's a three-time major champion, a former world number one, a man with 18 PGA Tour wins to his name, a two-time Nedbank Million Dollar Champion, a World Golf Hall of Fame inductee, a five-time President's Cup team member, and a three-time Captain, the list goes on and on. More importantly, though, perhaps mention the name Nick Price, and most people will say he's one of the nicest guys to have ever played the game. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Well, I say it, but Dale Hayes, well, he's got some disparaging things to say about you. (laughs) I've I've left a long time. That is absolutely not true, Nick. Just Just to get us off, get us started, you know, Going back to those days at Warren Hills when you started to play golf, how did that all happen with your brother Tim and all the other really good young players of the day? Well, for me, I started, you know, when Tim was uh, seven years older than than I am. So, you know, I always wanted to hang with him and his buddies. They always did things that are far more exciting than what I was doing. And when I was about eight, eight, maybe nine years old, he and his uh, three buddies snuck onto a golf course right next near Warren called Sherwood. And they asked me to go along and little did I realize that I was going to be the caddy. And so uh, they had this old canvas bag that they bought from a second hand shop that had about 40 old clubs in it. Hickory shafts, plastic coated, left handed, four drivers. I mean, it was real sort of hodgepodge of golf clubs. And it had a uh, it didn't have a strap. It had a piece of rope for the for the strap. And so I started carrying this thing, which I don't know how much it weighed, but after a, you know two or three minutes, it started cutting into my shoulders. So I started dragging it down the middle of the fairway. And so that's how I ended up getting my first introduction to the golf course. And, you know, I'd never seen green grass like that in my life. When we got onto the, to the putting green, I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. My mom would die to have a lawn like this, you know. And then uh, we did that a couple of times, and then we got caught by one of the members. And he said, oh, you look, don't don't worry. You know, there's a junior golf, uh, these little nine, 18 holes, um, medal rounds that you can go on Monday to Friday during the school holidays. And uh, it only cost, like, in those days, it was like 10 cents to play. And so that's how I ended up starting. You know, uh, I went up to the, the one Warren Hills with my brother. It was the first one, which was a Friday. And um, I was so scared, I locked myself in the toilet. I didn't know what to do. I was <laughs> I was about nine, maybe 10 years old. And my brother had to do a lot of coaxing to get me out of there. But, um, you know, it was, uh, it, was uh, it was a great start. And, you know, we just played for fun. Just like, I mean, we didn't know anything about tournament golf or anything. We were just happy to get out on the golf course. But growing up in what was then <laughs> Rhodesia, I mean, you must have played a lot of sports. Yeah, we did. You know, at school... Um, Obviously, rugby, cricket was my my big love. My dad was a huge cricket fan. 
But then, you know, we had athletics um, and then, you know, swim meets. We did everything, honestly, uh, cross country, just about everything. A um, little bit of tennis, not much tennis, a little bit of squash. Um, but cricket was the one, the one game that I really loved. And then when I got into golf in earnest, when I was about 16, I switched from playing rugby to field hockey because I felt it would be better for, you know, not only injuries and that, but also for, um, you know, strengthen up my wrists for golf and that sort of thing. When did you get a sense that, uh, that golf, though, was going to be it and you, and, you, and, you, and you dumped the other sports and, that, and perhaps got a sense that perhaps you could make a career out of it? Yeah, I think, you know, the first time I really understood anything about having, making a career out of golf, was in a golf magazine. I think it was about 1971, maybe 70. So I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I saw Jack Nicholas won $25,000 for winning a tournament here in the, in the US. And I thought, you know, my mom used to drop me off at the golf course with about 30, 40 cents, which sounds like nothing, but it was enough to play, pay for our golf for the day and also, you know, have a pie and a couple of Cokes and that sort of thing. But I thought to myself, 25 grand, you know how much golf I can play for 25,000? <laughs> So that was sort of my first introduction. And, and then uh, obviously, you know, uh, a little later we started, we had tournaments in, in Rhodesia at the time. Um, and so I would go and watch those with my brother and that. So, uh, but I, I think probably when I was about 16, 17, I, well, 17, I, I came over to the junior world over here. And to be honest, I had no idea how good I was. And I ended up winning the thing, which was just like, I mean, an absolute you know, a dream come true for me. And and then, you know, I realized that, you know, coming from a small environment of golf, like in, in Rhodesia or in Zimbabwe, it was like, we had no idea how good we were, you know, so that was a, a great thing for me. Uh, so that was the opener, you know, but I, I still wasn't 100% sure if I was going to be good enough to be a professional. I mean, I wanted to be one, but, you know, that, that leap from junior golf, success at junior mm-hmm. golf, you have to go through amateur golf and be successful and so on before I think you get into that. So that's how it really started for me. But My then you were fortunate yeah. that you had you had people like Mark McNulty, you had obviously George Harvey, yeah. I think somebody that drove you guys, and, and obviously Dennis Watson and Tony Johnston. Yeah, I mean, we had a great batch of, of, of young players then, um, and, and, and I was the youngest, you know, um, Dennis Watson was probably, well, George Harvey was by far the best player we had in our country. And he was, I don't know, George is probably about seven, eight years, maybe nine years older than I am. But everybody knows how good an amateur he was in his day. Uh, You know, Teddy Weber was there. He was a great amateur player. We had a lot of really good amateur players. Um, Dennis Watson was probably, he was so far ahead of all of us when we were 15, 16, 17. He was so good. Um, and then obviously Mark McNulty, who, uh, who obviously had to, uh, has had a fantastic career. Tony Johnson. Tony Johnson first came and stayed with me when he was 11 years old. And, uh, you know, I've got some great stories about what happened that first time we met. But he's a year older than I am. And I remember looking at him and uh, I was looking at the top of his head when we went to pick him up at the railway station. And I said to him, how old are you? And he looked me looked up at me and he said, 11, how old are you? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was so happy I was, I was bigger than an 11 year old anyway uh, but we, we had a great friendship so you know but it was very competitive that was the best thing about it you know we we all wanted to get better it wasn't about you know trying to keep our handicaps up or whatever it was every time we had the school holidays we try to get our handicaps down as much as we could you know it was a it was sort of like a challenge and of course you know going from uh, you know 12 to like 14, 15 years old, I did a lot of uh, growing at that stage and my game got strong and and that's when I really started to, you know, play well as a junior. And in terms of Rhodesian or Zimbabwean golfing icons, was there anyone that, that you kind of looked up to back then? I presume this was also pre-TV as well. Right, it was. So we had a couple of pros up there that could play, you know, uh, uh, Muscammon. There were a few other guys that could play, but Simon Hobday was probably the most successful guy that we had. And he was, you know, one of my uh, boyhood idols. I mean, throughout my life, I, I, I absolutely loved the man. He was, he was an inspiration to, for me and to a lot of us. Um, he had a great golf swing. He was a real character. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that if you look at his golf swing and my swing, there's a lot of similarities to it because he was the only guy that we could sort of model ourselves on. And, um, you know, he, he, he was just he was just a great man. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he taught me an awful lot. 
especially when I went on tour in Europe, you know, my second year, he said, you're traveling with me, you're coming on Hob Days tours. And I said, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> oh, and, and eventually at the end, after about four months of traveling and sharing a room with him, I got back home and my buddy said to me, said, hey, hey, Nick, you really travel with Hob Day? Because he's a legend, you know, I'm like a 21 year old upstart. And he says, uh, and I said, yeah, I did. And he said, well, what was it like? I said, well, it was a learning experience. I can tell you that. And they said, well, what did you learn? And I said, well, I learned that if I'm ever going to be successful as a professional golfer, I have to do everything opposite to Hob Day. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to believe, Nick, that that was 45 years ago that you turned professional. Uh, I mean, uh, you must look back and think, you know, just the other day that all happened. Well, and I remember playing with you, Dale, and you know what? You, know, you were always uh, very kind to me, even though I was uh, a youngster. And uh, we had a lot of fun on the golf course in those days. And Europe was, I remember you just came back from Europe in 78, which was my first, sorry, you came back from the States, playing in the States in 78. 78 was my first year in Europe. And uh, I think you won three in a row in that, uh, what was it, Italian, Spanish, or uh, French. Anyway, you, you, you inspired us as well. And of course, David Ledbetter was around. He was another friend. Yeah, you know, I first met David when I was probably 11 or 12. I played golf with him and uh, he's a little older than I was or than I am. And uh, he got into teaching. You know, he could play David. We all knew he could he could play, because, but he never had any consistency in his game. And uh, he turned to teaching, which was to uh, my benefit and Dennis Watson and a lot of us, you know, from Southern Africa. And uh, he came over to Greenleaf here in the in Florida in '82, and I was I'd had a terrible year in '81, and I phoned him up after seeing what he'd he'd worked with uh, Dennis Watson for probably four or five months in 1981, and uh, I saw what he'd done to Dennis's swing and his posture and his press and everything. He just really refined it, and I phoned him up. I said, "I'm at a wit's end here. I've never had a lesson from anyone in my life. I don't know who to trust." But you and I go back a long way. And he said, well, come on over. So I came over in March of 82 and spent six, week with, six weeks with him. And it was the first time it was really, I mean, people will laugh now, but that was the first time I ever saw my golf swing in slow motion. Um, you know, we'd seen eight millimeter films and you'd sort of seen flashes on TV and that sort of thing. But I'd never, ever seen my golf swing broken down. And David had, a, in those days, a really good video camera that, probably at 600 frames per second or whatever it was, but you could freeze it. And when I first saw my golf swing and all the different angles and everything, I, I almost threw up. I said, you know, it doesn't look what my, doesn't feel what my golf swing, uh, it doesn't look what my golf swing feels like. So anyway, and so I started, you know, um, rebuilding. And I don't, you can't really change your swing, as everyone says. You can refine it. I think we're all given a swing uh, from when we start. And those characteristics, the characteristics that you have in that swing, you're going to carry with you forever. It's just a question of getting your margins down and your uh, and the consistency in your golf swing. And that's what David did for me. You know, obviously, with I did a, I did a lot of hard work with it too. But um, he sort of got me on the right track. And then, um, you know, you start figuring out a few things on your own, and then things fall into place. And you know, it took me a while, but um, I got to I got to where I wanted to get in the game in the '90s. So it was it was a it was a great it was a great road to travel. In '82, there did then uh, Nick was some sort of turning point. Obviously, you, you, you would argue, obviously your your career peak was was ten or twelve years later. But '82 and uh, and the tie second in the Open Championship. Um, yeah, that's funny because you know I'd been working with David for about well since March, March and April. I spent those six weeks, and then not three months later in June, uh, two months later, ten weeks, whatever. I'm leading the British Open with six holes to go by three shots. Um, and, you know, I was probably, although I don't really think I was, but I was probably like a deer in headlights. I knew what I was doing, but um, it was uh, it was a position to be thrust in from where I played so poorly in 1981. And now I'm leading, you know, arguably the most important major championship in the world. Yeah. And so... Anyway, I failed. Uh, you know, I, I stumbled coming in, uh, but it was a huge learning experience for me. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at it in a positive light. I said to myself, well, I've, I've kind of blown the, the, the Open Championship at 25, but how many people at 25 know they have the, have the capability of winning a, a major championship? So mm -hmm. I took that, I turned it into a positive and, and just, um, you know, 
coming over here in 83 and getting my tour card and then winning the World Series within, you know, 13 months of that uh, downfall at the Open Championship, really, that was the, the real key for me because uh, it gave me a 10-year exemption. And beating Jack and, Nicklaus uh, at the same time. I was, yep. off, I was off to the races then. We're jumping around a bit here, but I want to go back to to Rhodesia again. Tell us a bit about your time in the Rhodesian Air Force and how that <laughs> influenced your game and sort of the mindset that it gave you. Well, I think anyone who's done their service understands, you know, the discipline and the camaraderie that you have with the guys in your intake is is something special. And then, you know, we, we had the war going on, saw a lot of nasty things, which made me mature, matured, uh, mature quicker than probably I should have. But, um, you know, I lost friends. Um, I, it, it was a very... It, it was a tough time, but in, in, in one respect, but in the other respect, it was it taught me an awful lot. Um, and I was a richer person for having gone through it. That's for sure. Both my parents had been in the military and then both my brothers had done their service. But um, I ended up doing 18 months, which was about six months longer than we were supposed to do because they slept on another six months when we were in for about 30 days. Mm-hmm. We all tore up our calendars. We all were marking off, you know, how many days we had left, and they just slept on another 180. So that put paid to the calendars. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it was it was a great experience for me um, in in many ways. Um, sad, um, but uh, I, I think it, you know everything that happens to you helps shape you in, in the end. And I think it, it 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 shaped me in many good ways. Appreciative of life and how to enjoy life because it can be taken away from you very quickly. We've had Nick Felder on the podcast and he, I remember vividly him telling us a story about when he went up to play golf in, in Rhodesia for the first time and it was, the war was on and talks about seeing eyes in bushes and it was just like, Wild he said time. it was next level stuff. He was probably suffering from a bit of heat fatigue, you know, that <laughs> up, in, up in Elephant Hills. It used to get in the mid 40s there. And then the English guys, they couldn't hack it. It was so hot, but he probably see, started seeing things in the trees. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, after, after the World Series win in, in uh, 1983, it took, you, it took you a while then to, to really um, get, you, get your game to, to, to where you got it. What, what happened in those sort of seven or eight years? I would say that opportunity, that tenure exemption gave me an opportunity to consolidate my and, and strengthen my game. I, I, as you know, in the early part of my career, I would flash hot and cold. I could play great for a week or two and then I'd miss four or five cuts in a row or barely make the cut. And, and that's not the way I wanted to play golf. So after seeing Ledbetter and finding out more about my golf swing and learning more, that period was really a, a building period for me. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's hard to go out in a tournament and pull the trigger on, you know, maybe a, a, a new move you're trying to work on in your golf swing. But I did it and, 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 it, and it certainly paid dividends towards the end. But, you know, about 85, 85, 86 was when my game really started turning, I felt. Um, you know, I, 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 I played well at the PGA at, at Cherry Hills in 85, was in the last group, ended up finishing fourth i think it was fifth yeah, uh, yeah. Played with, i played with hubert uh hubert green and lee trevino um that was an eye opener you know uh, and then 86 i played well at augusta i had a chance to win there when jack won and then a, a couple of other sort of shades and majors but i was starting to put in some really consistent golf and and then 88 was a, a critical critical time for me because sevi and i went head to head um, at uh, Lytham and St. Anne's. Uh, and, and I, from tee to green, played as well as I possibly could. My short game was not nearly as strong as his. And he beat me fair and square. He played beautifully. He didn't hit the ball as well as I did, but his short game was just off the charts good. And I think it was evident by that shot that he hit on the 72nd hole, that little chip from a down slope, side slope, and, and, he, and he, he, it should have gone in the hole. How it missed, I don't know. But and I remember thinking to myself after that open, uh, you know, what am I going to do to win? And there was clear slap in the face, work on your short game. And that's what I started doing. I started spending more time working on my chipping, uh, my bunker play, my, my short game. And, you know, in times gone by, I would probably appropriate 10, 15% of my practice time to the short game. Well, I upped that to about 50, 
And that's what turned the corner for me. Uh, it really did. Um, you know, 89, 90, I started having a lot of top five, top 10 finishes on the tour and, and started, you know, uh, winning around the world. Um, and then I broke through in 91, um, winning the Byron Nelson. And it was funny, that win uh, was key for me because I always felt like I had to strike the ball exceptionally well to win a tournament. And that last round of the Byron Nelson on a scale of one to 10, I probably hit the ball at about a five and a half. But my short game was a 9.8. Every time I missed the green, I chipped it up, chipped it up close. Anyway, I ended up shooting on 68 the last round. And I won in such a foreign way to the way I'd won before in that my long game was not my strongest asset. And so that gave me a huge amount of confidence. And I don't know if that, what that X, what the multiply, uh, multiplier was, whether it was two times, four times, six times, whatever it was, I had this inner self-confidence. And, um, you know, the next five years was just a result of that. I just got better and better and better. And that was, um, uh, you know, and I, and I was 34 when I won that set for the second time in America. So, you know, I felt like in, in my day, in our day anyway, that was when you started playing your best golf was when you were in your sort of 30s. Interesting what you say, Nick, about uh, about that that realization after the '88 Open that you needed to work in your short game. Because I look at your major record: three missed cuts in '89, didn't qualify, I think, for the Masters in '90, nor the U.S. Open, no top tens, no good results in the majors in '91. But like you said, the Byron Nelson victory kicking you on then it's in '92. So you really had to bide your time building that short game in '89, '90, and '91. Right. It, it, it was it was huge for me. And, you know, maybe I neglected a little bit of my long game. Um, but, you know, sooner, I think that's what happened during that period. I started uh, realizing that I had to, you know, do a 50-50 split on my short game and my, instead of spending so much time on my short game. But, um, you know, there was a, there, there, it, it, when I look back, it's hard to sort of say, well, this is exactly what happened then because everything in golf is about feel. And, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, momentum. And so, um, but, but that, that, like I say, that 91 really um, victory at the Byron Nelson really turned things around for me. You know, what you, what you say, I remember in 1993, I walked the last two rounds with you at the NetBank Golf Challenge. <laughs> and you, obviously from T to Green, you were absolutely brilliant. But what struck me is that every time you did miss a Green, which was very few times, it was probably a couple of times each day, or, and, and maybe on a couple of par fives, you, your short game was absolutely out of this world. Mm. And, and that's where I could see the difference. You know, because as an outsider, you know, you don't, we, looked, we looked at your game differently to the way you looked at your game. Mm. And I mean, when you were 17, 18 years old, I could see that you were going to be a, a, a star player. But the difference for me in 93 was the way you played around the greens. Yeah, I think that was, you know, that was, obviously that was, to me, that victory at the, at the million dollar was one of three tournaments that I played in, in that, that I, I felt invincible. Like, I felt like Tiger Woods feels when he wins, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, was, it was the most amazing week that. And uh, I, I think that I remember playing with McNulty in the last round and he was like, I think, eight or nine behind. And he hits it to about three inches on number one, and I jarred a wedge right on top of him. <laughs> so he makes birdie and loses another shot to me. But that was, that I remember was, that, that was, so clearly. Ah, I remember that. I can remember <laughs> it like it was yesterday. Yeah, but it was great fun, you know. And obviously, Mark and I played an awful lot of golf together. But uh, you know, that was a great victory for me, um, especially coming on the heels of the year before where I disqualified myself, which we no need to go into detail about that. But you know, that that was. It was a great period in my life there. Well, take us back to 1992. Take us back to the PGA Championship and, and that first win when you finally got over the line. Well, before you get there, I mean, it's coming off the back of a, of a tied six at the Masters. I think it's the one that couples won in 92. Mm. A tied fourth at the US Open. I think Tom Kite won that year. Uh, you know, yeah. not a great re- result at the Open Championship. But, I mean, you've had two top tens in the majors and then you kick on into to Belle Reve uh, in 92, the PGA. Well, you know, when I first got there, that golf course was right up my street. It was a driving golf course. If you drove, and that's true for any golf course, you can always say, but more so in summertime when the rough is up, and that's probably why I always seem to play better in the summer, is because you get rewarded for driving the ball in the fairway. And, and I knew 
going into that week that if I played my cards right and I just played smart, you know, I'd have a chance at the end. I mean, I didn't for one minute think, hey, I'm going to win this week. But I knew that I it was a golf course that I had a chance to win on. And uh, I think everything, all my experience and, and, and uh, knowledge of what I'd learned about myself and about major championships and about golf in general, really came out on that back nine on Sunday. Um, there were a whole, there were about four or five of us that mm. were within maybe two or three shots of each other. Uh, there were four or five guys who had a chance to win. And I just played conservatively when I needed to. I tried to pick on the, pick the holes where I had an opportunity to, to make birdie. I made some great putts. I hit some great iron shots that back nine. And, uh, that's how I ended up winning. Uh, you know, I ended up winning, I think, by four, but it was a lot closer than that because I birdied 16, and then uh, I think it was uh, Faldo or uh, John Cook bogeyed 17. And anyway, I ended up winning by four, which didn't really explain the margin. Um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a true reflection of, of how close it really was. Again, that was a, a, a tournament that gave me so much confidence, and I felt that, you know, my time was coming now. So 35 years old, I'm, I'm now one of my first major. I don't want to call it choking, but did you have that feeling, well, I've been so close before, please don't, don't mess this up. Yeah. No, that didn't even, I mean, obviously in the back of your mind, there's, there's always that. But, you know, if you're paying attention to what you, you're doing on the golf course and you, and you concern yourself with only the next shot, not what's ahead, staying in the moment, don't worry about what's happened behind, just do the very best and not the next shot you have, which was, you know, one of the things that I w was doing so well when I was playing well, um, you know, the rest takes care of itself. And um, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to win, but if you play the next shot that you have, the very best you can, you know, and it all adds up and you win, that that's how you do it. You stay in that moment. You stay focused on what you're trying to do. When you do get ahead of yourself, uh, that's when everybody gets into trouble. Well, you know, I'm now... I mean, how many guys breaking 80 for the first time or breaking par? You know, they get to 15 and mm. they're uh, five overs. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break 80 today if I can just get through this hole and this hole and this hole. And the very next shot they play, they slice it out of bounds or something <laughs> yeah. because they totally forget. Yeah, the shot. And shoot 90. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a terrible game sometimes. <laughs> when did that? When did the uh, the fat lady come into play? The putter. Oh, that's a great, it was a great story because I was just telling someone the other day about when we were doing an interview with the PGA uh, at Southern Hills. And, and uh, I went to, uh, I won the, the Open at Turnbury in 94 using a Ram Zebra putter. And, and uh, <laughs> two weeks later, I'm playing in Memphis and I walk onto the putting green on a Tuesday. And uh, here's this guy with a fat lady putter. And he said, do you want to try this? And I hit a couple of putts. And I said, this has got a beautiful feel. It's nicely balanced, whatever. And I said, you know, I, 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 let me give it you know, some time. I'll work on it a little bit. So anyway, I went and I played the first two rounds at Memphis. And I, I made the cut by, uh, comfortably. But I was right in the middle of the pack. And um, Squeaky, my caddy, he said to me, you know, why don't you try that putter that you got on the putting green? I said, you know, I've been thinking about that. But Anyway, so I put this putter in the bag, and I think I shot two pa a pair of 65s on the weekend and missed the playoff by a shot. So now I arrive at the PGA Championship with a new putter, you know, uh, and I just won with the, with the, the, the Ram putter at the, at the British Open. People are looking at me like, are you Mad. crazy? You just won the <laughs> British Open, you know, with a, with a zebra. And now, and now, you, uh, now you change putters. You can imagine what George Bloomberg would have said to me. Yeah, that's right. He would have gone. He would have gone ballistic. What are you doing? Well, the rest is history because I put it. That was undoubtedly probably the strongest part of my game that 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 uh, that week. And then I went into that you know period where that put just for I don't know five six months. I just felt like the hole was a lot bigger than it actually was. Is it still in the house? Do you still have it? Yeah, it's around that. It's in the in the storage. So uh, <laughs> it's I, pulled it out a, I pulled it out a couple of times, but I think I used up all of the all the one putts in the putter. Had to retire. <laughs> to, it's probably time then that we reference Southern Hills, uh, Nick. That that ninety four PGA. It's it's fortuitous that we're speaking to you in the week that the PGA is taking place there again. So so perhaps some thoughts on on Southern Hills as a golf course and and what type of player it suits. 
a fantastic golf course. Um, and, and it's, uh, Gil, Gil Hans redid it, I think about three years ago. And I've been speaking to a couple of the boys and, uh, you know, this week and they've said the course is it's in terrific shape. The, the changes are all really good. They've made it obviously quite a bit longer. Uh, it's the same design, but, uh, the same same layout slightly different on a couple of holes but um it, it it's going to produce a, a, a really great champion that course has a has a knack of doing that and i'm not saying that just because i won but if you look back you got you know hubert green raymond floyd um you know dave ma i think i'm trying to think who the other one oh no sorry dave stockton won there um and then goose won the open uh, you know so tiger won there i mean it's 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 a fantastic golf course so I think it's going to be a very exciting week. Um, and, you know, I'd love to see one of the, you know, South African boys pull off a win. Obviously, 94 was, you know, when you were world number one and, and, and results-wise, two majors in a year. I mean, obviously, it's a standout year. Was that the absolute best that you'd ever played and, and when you felt as on top of your game as you could ever be? Well, after I won um, at the PGA, I knocked Greg off, Greg Norman yep. off the number one spot. And, and that was, for me... Um, that was the peak of my uh, career, I think. From there on, it flattened out and then started, you know, sort of going down slow, slowly downhill. But uh, that was that was the peak. That was definitely the acme. You know, if we fast forward, I mean, 94 was the peak. But, you know, as you get to, you know, like I say, your, your career perhaps flattened out a bit. And I'm always curious as to when those who get to the absolute top you know, what's the flip side of that? When does it come to an end? And when do you get it? Did you, can you remember when you got a sense to say, well, you know, the end is nigh now. You know, I'm no longer the player that I mm. was. I need to start looking to the next stage of my career, whether that is, you know, a seniors tour or you are, you are the yeah. bus, business interests, which obviously by now you probably started to explore. Was, was there a moment in your career where, where your game, you just knew then and there, listen, I think it's over Well, now. I would say in about 02, 03, 04, somewhere around that period when the equipment really, you know, came out with a big hitter driver and the ball had changed and everything and the guys were swinging at it harder. Um, that was uh, that was tough for me because you know at 45, 46 I couldn't r- ramp up the speed. I mean my swing yeah. was so ingrained I, I couldn't suddenly just get 10 or 15 mile an hour faster with my driver and uh, you know it, it, that was a tough thing. So I felt like you know I got left behind a little bit with the equipment. Now guys who are about five or six years younger than I was at that stage, guys who were in their late 30s and they they did. They did manage to do that. DJ, you know, obviously Ernie's a considerable, what's he, 12 years younger than I am. He upped that, that game. Um, but the interesting thing was, was we, he, he and I had played that shells match at Leopard Creek. I think it was in 98 or 99. And uh, I, if you look at that match, he wasn't driving the ball that well, but I outdrove him, I think, like seven or eight times out of the 14 holes or whatever. And then we played a practice round um in the 2003 tournament of champions in hawaii and i couldn't get it within 40 yards of him and that was the difference it was a huge it was a quantum leap in distance for him and we i just my generation we never got it we didn't we didn't get that benefit of the equipment um so uh you know that was the writing was on the wall then you know and, and i wasn't that enamored about going to the champions tour to be honest um it was a nice thing to have as a pastime, but it wasn't something that I was going to go out there and bust my gut and play every day of my life and practice and, you know, grind it out like, like Bernard Langer has. I mean, it's unbelievable. I wish yeah. I could have done that. I wish I had that fire in my belly and that, uh, that drive to do that, what Bernard's done. And it's been phenomenal watching him. I don't know how he's kept that, that, that drive. Um, most of us are just, you know, sitting back now, drinking beer and smoking cigars <laughs> yeah. and, and enjoying, enjoying bright things. You know? yeah, better. He, he says there. he says he yeah. just stretches. That's his, that's his big thing. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, as well, at that time, early 2000s, Tiger was in his prime. I think everyone was looking at yeah. him going, gee whiz, this guy's changed the way we play golf. He goes to the gym. He's buff. You know, it was like that... <laughs> That was a watershed moment. And as you say, perhaps for your generation, you know, Gary, yes, he liked to go to the gym and he, and he punted that. But it, that wasn't really the habit back then, was it? No, you know, I don't think, you know, it wasn't. But, you know, most of us were, you know, physically fit. I mean, I could play 
36 holes in a day, no problem. I yeah. mean, in the heat of summer, uh, it, it wasn't. And, you know, um, and, you know, on the other hand, there are a lot of guys out there now who don't work out and still hit the ball miles and are still playing well. You know, um, obviously, Mickelson's never been a top-ranked athlete in my book. Um, you know, sort of uh, testament to that is the how high he jumped when he held that putt at Augusta to win the Masters <laughs> that year. I mean, I don't think he made it off the ground about six inches. Probably looked like you jumping down. <laughs> when it landed, yeah, it was a softer. If I, if I jumped, they would have felt it in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, um, I mean, everything for us, you know, uh, I suppose the difference in the game now, and, and I was go, just to go back a little bit i was really lucky because from 97 to about 2003 i probably played with tiger on average about 15 to 20 times a year i was paired wow. with him and i watched him mature as a player and for what he had when he came out in 97 he learned very very quickly um and i think he, he would always ask us you know the older pros uh, ask us what we've did and whatever on the golf course not saying that i contributed to anything but he was he was always inquisitive he always wanted to get better and you know you got what, what we ended up with was a guy who had immense talent who worked very hard had a phenomenal short game a brilliant brilliant strategy on the golf course and then and, and always wanted to learn that's the other thing and also he was driven so you know it was so wonderful to get to see him i remember playing at the british open at uh, st andrews in 2000 and uh he was on his way to winning i think the third of the four majors that he won and ah, he got the tiger slam and Macy roberts yeah. was caddying for me and yeah. we walked off the, we walked off the 18th green after 36 holes and tiger had shot i think 65 66 and or 66 65 and ricky looks at me and he says I think we were all in trouble this week, Nick. This guy hasn't even broken out in a sweat yet. And it was so true. Um, and that was, to me, probably one of the greatest displays of golf, that 36 holes that I've seen probably ever in my life. And that win at the Nedbank when you beat him in 98, do you still, yeah. do you still think back fondly on that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a very special week again for me. You know, I mean, I was uh, 41 years old yeah. at the time, so... To beat Tiger head to head, uh, or the greatest player, certainly in my generation, and I know you know Jack was. I got to play a little bit with Jack when he was still a, a really good player, but you know I got to see firsthand at Tiger, and um, so it was it was nice to beat him on my on my home turf. Uh, to Nick, to two names that have popped up in the last five to ten minutes: Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson. You know, it would be remiss yeah. of us to not address perhaps the <laughs> yeah. elephant in the room and perhaps the biggest talking yeah. point in golf. Let's start with uh, your relationship with Greg Norman as it goes back, because you guys were close friends at one stage. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I don't know. We drifted apart back in the late 90s, and uh, I hardly ever see him now. Um, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know what happened, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he went off on a different tangent, Greg. He wanted to become, you know, the best pro golfer slash businessman, I think, that ever lived um, and neglected a lot of other things in his life. Um, but anyway uh you know we had a great friendship for for a long time and he certainly helped me along my way we, we we've kind of fed off each other for about seven or eight years there and uh we we spent a lot of time with our families anyway uh, fishing and and, and uh, holidaying together so yeah that's where that lies <laughs> yeah and phil mickelson uh, just to pick up on what dill said firstly before we get into what he's done recently your thoughts on on him not being at the PGA this week to defend his title? Yeah, it's, it's sad. You know, it's sad that he's not there. I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously a lot of it is of his own doing. Um, but, you know, in the, when the push comes to shove, I know there are a lot of people that would be at the PGA who would love to have seen him play. Phil has always marched the beat of his own drum, you know, and, and sometimes a bit of a maverick. You know, he's not always been very popular amongst the players. He just does his own thing. And, and I think... We're starting to see some of that come out in him in the last sort of six months. Um, what a talent. I mean, seriously, he's another one of those guys. He's certainly in the top five guys I've ever seen with with mega, mega talent. And in fact, if he'd had a great strategy and, and you know, he always tried to play, you know, would say, oh, no, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm entertaining the crowd and I'm going for bust. But if he'd had a really, really sound strategy on the golf course and had been disciplined enough, 
he probably would have come close to, you know, 15, 16 majors. I, I honestly believe that. But, you know, he just, he would try the most ridiculous things mm. where most of us who are watching on TV, we'd hide under the couch. <laughs> what or the, the hell are you doing? We just couldn't believe, couldn't believe he's going to try that, you know. But, um, you know, mega talent. So, Nick, your thoughts on the uh, the Saudi Arabia-backed Live Golf Invitational Series? Yeah, I just hope it doesn't sort of destroy golf as we know it. Um, I think that's what most of us old-timers are really worried about. Um, what are the long-reaching ramifications of this if it's successful? Um, will it be in the right hands, for example? Is it something that... Uh, you know, if you look at the PGA Tour, and, and, I, and I, I want to just go back and look at the positive things, yeah. and I don't want to try to project or, or, or certainly predict anything that's going to happen. But if you look at the PGA Tour, it's been around since 1968. So, you know, 60, almost 60 years now. And they have perfected this wonderful tour. And, you know, you can poke holes in it. Anybody sitting on the outside of any company or any association or, or, or uh, uh, organization, you can shoot holes and say, oh, they should be doing this and they should be doing that. But look at all the good they've done. $2 billion to charity over that period of time. Yeah. All the small communities that we go and play in, we get 12, 1,500 volunteers from the local cities. All the money that the proceeds that they make go to their charities. So the Boys and Girls Club in Dallas with a salesmanship club, um, you know, the JCs, just so many of these charities are a benefit from the PGA Tour. And then you look at the players. You have a look at all the guys, and I'm one who is extremely grateful for having that opportunity to play. I have a great retirement package. I still have the medical. I'm on a uh, health care uh, uh, program, insurance program with them. Um, you know, it's just, it's it, it, PGA Tour is about legacy. It's about leaving a legacy and i i don't know if that's going to be hurt the whole tour is going to be hurt by this or not um you know there is room for some other tournaments around the world there's no doubt there are um and would it be good to have some competition for the pga tour yeah i mean we've seen that with europe uh and we see that with the Ryder cup that's a healthy uh, confrontation or competition but you know i i just don't know i think this is new ground for all of us and um I'm just worried that golf's going to change as we know it and, and might be controlled by the wrong people, say. Obviously, the suggestion is that those, those older players in the twilight of their careers are seeing this as, a, as an opportunity to cash in and perhaps the younger players might see, see more of the sense of the history and chase the major championships. But, you know, the notion that, that I struggle with is the suggestion that there isn't good money on the PGA Tour. Well, I would argue that there's, play, <laughs> there's players out there who haven't even come close to winning a major, let alone a tour event. Yeah, and they're doing all right. That have made millions of dollars yep. being relatively mediocre yep. with respect. Yeah, and I think also, you know, you, one has to look at the longevity. You know, if you support the tour and you stay with the tour, you're going to get, you know, great benefits um, through your retirement. And, you know, no one gives you anything on the plate on a tour. You don't get given. When you start the year, you may have contracts from the way you played the year before, but you start at zero. You have to make every dollar you go out there and earn it. And of course, your, a lot of your contracts are dictated by how much how much you make and where you finish in the FedEx or on the money list. So it's a very healthy environment. And you know, to suddenly just say to guys, "Okay, here you guaranteed X amount of money," uh, I don't think that's a healthy thing. To be honest, I really don't. And and especially, like you say, some of the players who, you know, aren't superstars are, are being offered a lot of money. So. But, you know, like I say, there's, it's good for them if they want to do it. And I'm certainly not going to criticize guys for, for, for wanting to do that. But I think they should just look at what the ramifications are for their careers in the, in the long term. You know, is, is it, do they want to go and play overseas all the time when you've got, you know, great tournaments right here on your, on your doorstep? But anyway... Like I say, new new territory. Let's just go back a second uh, to when the All-Exempt Tour started. And I can remember very clearly that Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer went to Dean Beeman and said, Dean, we don't like this because you are guaranteeing people money to play. All they've got to do is stay in the top 100, 120, whatever it might be. And they're going to, you know, they're going to make a really, really good living. Now, this has taken that 
not that not that they were 100 right because i think we have seen a lot of really good players since all exempt two came up but this is taking that to another level where yeah 48 players or however many maybe they're going to be a few more than 48 players are going to be guaranteed exorbitant money mm. And they only have to keep playing in these tournaments and they're going to make an absolute fortune over the next few years. Which brings me to my next thing. How long will it be before they, they turn around and they say, hang on a second, we're tired of golf. Why don't we put our money into tennis? Or why yeah, don't we yeah. go and yeah. Disneyland? Why don't we go and do something else with our money? Yeah, it's a good question. That's why I said earlier about longevity. How long are they around for? And, you know, I, I, my fear is that the guys who do go and play there there's going to be some ramification for them whether they're on the uh, dp world tour or whether they're on the on the on the pga tour there's going to be some penalty in there and they may lose all their privileges while playing you know so you know uh, they may have to take their retirement accounts because they're not active on the pga tour anymore i know there's my retirement kicked in when i couldn't play 15 tournaments for two consecutive years i had to start taking my pension which, you know, at that stage, I was ready to take it. But you don't want to be taking your pension when you're 40 or 39. I don't know, you know, because these it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, retirement pension we, we have. Anyway, I just think that they're, 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 all the motives are the wrong or in the wrong direction there. Because, you know, the people that are going to suffer more than anything on this tour are your guys who are from 40 on the money list to 150. And people say, well, you know, those aren't the guys we come to watch anyway. But those are the guys that make the top 40 look good. Those yeah. are the guys that shoot 62s and 63s in the first round, lead the tournament, Cinderella story, and then, you know, get beaten by Rory McIlroy on Sunday. <laughs> that makes Rory McIlroy look good. So when you start going to limited fields, um, it really does reduce the, I don't know, what's it, the, 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 the whole panorama of a golf tournament it's a great thing when you've got 145 or 156 guys and like at the pga this week you know there's a slight chance but a club pro might win you never know you know i mean we have amateurs who have won pro tournaments you know phil mickelson won you know and and uh, a couple of other guys won Shane Lowry, yeah. Won professional yeah and so you know that's that's a that's a great thing that's what happens in golf do we just want to have the same sort of guys winning week in and week out? I don't know. That's, <laughs> I mean, I've tried to rack my brains as to think how this is going to work, but uh, I, I, I have no idea. And then you got guys like Sergio. I don't know if it's true, but you're saying, well, just a couple more weeks and, and then I'm out of here. <laughs> it just smacks of being slightly yeah. ungrateful. I know. And he's only made like, yeah. I don't know, what's he made on the tour? Like 70 million? I don't know. You know when you take into account all of his his uh, retirement and everything. I mean, he's got his own airplane. He flies around in a G4, G450. You know, geez, times must be tough. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Nick, what are, your, what are your thoughts when you think about your old mate, Greg? I know you guys have uh, have drifted, um, but when you think about Greg Norman's involvement in this, what, what kind of, what, what springs to mind? What's your overriding it's, feeling? It's right up his street. You know, he always had, had issues with the PGA Tour and and, and this him in uh, continuing all those issues. I think he was very upset and bitter about the original one not working, the original World Tour not working. Um, you know, in the, he just, this was a, a golden opportunity for him to, you know, to, I don't know, muscle his way back in somehow. He must have got a, a serious wake-up call with the way the media, and especially the American <laughs> golf media, but also the British golf media, have have come out against him and have come out against this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's it, like I keep saying, Dale. I mean, this is uncharted territory. We don't know what's coming up, and I think he doesn't know either. I don't think they understand or, or they have a, an idea of where they want to be, but they have no idea. I think exactly how much support they're going to get. You know, as an investor in that, I mean. LIV. I mean, are they going to stick around? As you said earlier, if this thing doesn't work in two years' time, or even in the first year, are they going to just pay the guys off and say, okay, sorry, it's not working, we're out of here? So I know where my allegiance would be if I was 25 years old. You know, the tour's been proven for a long time, and um, you can make a great living, and it, the tour's going to be around for a long time to come. 
just back to Phil Mickelson quickly, Nick. You know, you mentioned that perhaps he's not the most popular guy amongst the players. The fans always loved him. Do you think his his image and brand, Phil Mickelson, has has been irreparably tarnished by all of this? No, because I think if he apologized and sort of, you know, for what has happened and whatever, and he just turned around and said, oh, you know, look, I made a mistake and whatever, people would forgive him. You know, so, I mean, American fans and fans in general are very, very forgiving. I mean, you know, and, and, and if people are, are show that they, they are sorry and that they apologize for what they do, you know, um, fans forgive very quickly. You know, I mean, they, they want to watch him play golf. That's what they want to do. That's what he does. They don't want to listen to all the stuff that he's talking about and whatever. They, they want him to watch, watch him play golf. That's what he's good at, you know. And um, sometimes I wonder that, you know, most of us we shouldn't, uh, you know, voice our opinions and just play golf. But we're always asked strange questions. But anyway. And people like us. <laughs> it doesn't rank, obviously, with winning major championships. But you've had a lot of other awards. You know, the Byron Nelson Award, Payne Stewart Award, Bobby Jones Award, Old Tom Morris Award. But I think of all those you must be exceptionally proud of the fact that you got invited to join the USGA. Yeah, this has been a real experience. In fact, this morning, I just on, uh, we had a six hour, five hour conference call this morning, which is part of our spring meeting or summer meeting. You know, we'd normally have it about two, two weeks before the US Open. And it's been a real eye opener for me. And I've learned an awful lot. There are some exceptionally talented people in the USGA. It's a big organization. I think they've got a bum rap over the years for some of the inefficiencies. Um, sometimes the golf course setup has been questionable, you know, and people have criticized that. But if you have a look at all the good that they do in golf, I mean, they're a nonprofit organization. They pour all the money that they make back into golf. You know, they support junior golf. They support ladies golf. They support uh, senior golf. They support everything. I mean, it's amazing. Again, they do the gin, they do the rules, they do, there's just so many facets to the USGA. And I've been happy because the, I've been the two committees that I serve on, which is the competition committee and the equipment standards committee, which is the clubs. You know, I, I think I've been able to contribute in a little way about, in, in my way, uh, just to advise them and look from a professional golfer's perspective. And one of the things I'm really happy about is that uh, they've, they've chosen some phenomenal venues over the next 15 years. Venues that I, I, and I kept trying to say to them, you know, it's one thing to win a US Open, but where you win it is very important for a professional golfer. I would love to have won a British Open at St. Andrews. I'm not that Turnbury, Turnbury is a fantastic golf course, but St. Andrews has a ring to it. A US Open at Pebble or a PGA at Bolter's role, or, or winged foot, you know, that adds a special thing to that. And the two courses, wow, on my PGA, please don't, I'm not belittling them at all. They're both great golf courses. But, you know, that's important to a guy who wins an Open. He doesn't want to win it on a brand new golf course that nobody, that has no history to it. That's been a good thing. And then obviously the equipment. I think the equipment, you know, is something that we need to address now. And it's not a question of rolling it back to the you know, the, going back to the 90s or whatever, but there's needs to be, it's, it's, got, it's gotten a little out of hand. I think when you see 600-yard par fives and the guys are hitting drives and four irons and five irons for 600-yard par fives, well, you know, <laughs> why have a par five? Just make them all everything a par four and a par three uh, because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, that's the, the game's changed an awful lot because of the equipment, I think. You know, and it's not just about fitness. A lot of guys say, oh, you know, these guys work out and that, but, you look at a guy like Justin Thomas, you know, he weighs 155 pounds and he flies at 315. You know, um, he spends a little bit of time in the gym, but I mean, he's not like a Rory McIlroy or a Hendrik Stenson who, you know, worked out and, and, and a, or a Jason Day. And then, you know, you look at Mickelson even last year. I mean, look how far he was driving the ball at 49 years old or 50 years old. He's still flying at 320. So I think that's something that, and you know what, the big thing is, is that how do you, bring back the equipment without hurting the average guy. Yeah. That's the most important thing because yeah. the game's hard enough for us as it is. <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of facets to it but I think all the changes that will be made will probably affect the guys who hit the ball a long way more than the average the, the guy who hits it, you know, 240 or 230. When do you think that's likely to start happening? It's going to start I think within the next year or so. There'll be there's, there's some we have an area of interest which is a, a, a document we put out about uh, three months ago, 
which is where we're exploring certain parts of the game. The tolerances, you know, 10% or 5% tolerances, I think those will probably be reeled in at some stage where, you know, everyone's equipment now and the testing facilities that they have are so good that you don't need tolerances anymore. Here's the line, you've got to stay underneath it. So, and I think those will be reeled in. And, and it's just, you know, it's a revamping, I suppose, of the testing methods. That's what's going to happen. Um, and then you start looking and, and, and at what, what, what's, going to ha- what's going to happen in the future. One thing is that I think we're all worried about is that the great golf courses are being made redundant by the distance the ball is going. You know, um, I think Sun City would be, you probably see that firsthand, how far the guys sure. didn't account. They yeah. put the tees back, you know, what, from when we played 40 yards, and the guys are still hitting four or five clubs less than we are into those greens. Yeah. So, when, and, and it's fine. If we want to do that, that's fine. Make the golf courses 8,000 yards. But you know what that does to the average guy? It makes it very, very expensive because, you know, 10% more maintenance, 10% more purchase of property, um, 10% more water. I mean, just everything, everything just goes up. So in a time of our, uh, of the world where we'll sport and golf particularly, we don't want it to get more expensive. If anything, we want it to get a little cheaper so that we have more access, more people have access to the game. It's going the wrong way. And that's what concerns all of us. Uh, just out of interest, you know, we've got St. Andrews this year for the 150. Gee whiz, I'm just thinking now, you know, if they don't have any wind for four days. You know, what will those guys do to the home of golf potentially? Well, well, I'll tell you, you know, this is a great, that's a great point. You know, that if they have a warm summer and they'll know, you know, like a warm June or warm four or five weeks pre- uh, uh, leading up to the Open, and the ground is firm and the fairways are fast. And then you get a nice warm week with a little bit of wind, you know, with maybe 10, 12 mile an hour of wind. There are eight par fours that these guys will be able to drive. Jeez. They will be able to drive eight par fours. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is it's going to be six and a half hour rounds because the guys are going to be waiting for the guys to clear the green unless they're waved on you know, to clear, and, and that's going to just slow up play just miserably. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that I think the RNA are really concerned about, is that what is going to happen to their great links courses if we don't sort of start reeling back the equipment a little bit. And Because uh, it's not just the pros, you know, it's the college kids and the amateurs as well. They're also hitting at miles right now. So, you know, everyone says, oh, the pro, just change the pro game. Change it. Well, it's not just about the pros. You know, the amateurs are hitting at, the young amateurs are hitting at you know, just as far as the young, as the, as the pros are now. Yeah. You've talked about a lot of very serious stuff. We've talked about a lot of the tournaments that you've won. Okay. I think it's time to talk about a match that you lost. <laughs> and I think... I know where you're going. You're going I, to think, springs, I think that you need to hear about <laughs> Springs Country Club. <laughs> <laughs> That's still one of the funniest days of my life, that when Hobday broke at what he thought, what McNulty thought was his cutter <laughs> yes. over his knee yes. on the first tee. That had to be one of the funniest experiences. Well, I mean, McNulty, Mark was absolutely horrified, but Simon had walked into the pro shop on the way to the bathroom and seen this putter, which looked identical to McNulty's. And then walked, paid the guy the pro 10 rand or whatever it was for at the time, walked out onto the first tier. And I think Dale, you were doing, you were emceeing the thing. And he said, oh, yeah, we've got the two guys we're playing. Uh, Nick and Mark, and uh, yeah, Mark, as everyone knows, is that you know one of the best putters in the world. And and Hobday goes, well, where's that putter of his? And he pulls out this putter that he just bought in the shop, which was a, sp- a splitting image to start my uh, his uh, marks, and went and burnt, it broke it right over his knee on the first tee. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was one of the funny. I didn't even know I wasn't in on it, and I just looked. I was stunned. But <laughs> McNulty's face was a real picture. <laughs> <laughs> Any wonder you beat us that day. You put my partner off. I was playing you guys on my own. <laughs> leading on, leading on from from that. Obviously, and you mentioned it earlier in the show. Simon Hobday, what a character! Come on, your best Simon Hobday story. Oh my God, there were so many of them, and I mean, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Uh, God, I don't know. I still, I, <laughs> uh, I don't know. If, Geez, Dale, there's so many, man. I have to I kind of you'd have to jog my memory. Um, <laughs> I think when when he he three putted his way around Wentworth that time at the uh, Martini, or there was a PGA or the Martini, I can't remember. And he and I had hired a little Ford Fiesta, a little red one, and we were driving around. So it must have been like 79. Anyway, I think Seve ended up winning. 
Well, he broke his putter. He gave it the yellow card, then he gave it the red card, and then he broke it over his knee in the scorer's tent. And you remember, <laughs> old Bill Hodges was in there, Dale, and Bill was the sweetest old guy. He was absolutely horrified to see uh, to see Hobday break his putter. And then we went and had a couple of drinks, and he ordered two beers all the time, two pints, and, and he put his putter in the one pint and drink it and just look at this putter and say, suffer, suffer. Anyway, we went over to the, 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 the pub over the road to go and have dinner from Wentworth on the on the A30. I can't remember what it was called. And um, took off his shoelace out of his running shoes or whatever, his track shoes, and tied it onto the bumper. And we drove down the road near the entrance, Wentworth, with this thing bouncing behind the car <laughs> and coming up and hitting the window. I mean, it was the funniest thing. And we got to this pub and this thing, this putter was just mangled. Stuffed. Um, yeah. But I mean, the guy, everything he did was, was impromptu. You know, he never had anything that was rehearsed. That's what made him so funny. Nick, uh, do you make it back to Zimbabwe ever? Yeah. I mean, we haven't, obviously COVID's, you know, been terrible for all of us who love to travel. Um, so we 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 haven't been back for two years, um, but we're planning to come back this year. So you know, probably later in the year. But uh, you know, I miss I miss coming back. I'm, I really do. And last question from me, anyway. I just briefly want to get your thoughts on you, how you feel now about the Ryder Cup, because <laughs> <laughs> you weren't always a you know fan, what? were you? <laughs> No, but you know what? That my, some of those comments I made were misconstrued, and they weren't. They were taken out of context because someone said, "You know, would you enjoy playing in the Ryder Cup?" And you know, I, well, I was talking to us from a pressure point of view, what it would be like, and it and it's really, really hard, and it's hard. I mean, it's a great event to be involved in, I'm sure. But the President's Cup for me was. But you know, I said, you know, if you like hemorrhoids or root canals, you'd love playing in the Ryder Cup. It's it's it, it, it's it's very pressureful. But I think it's a fantastic event, honestly. I think it's it it showed golf back in its true form, which is you know match play. Obviously, we all love playing match play, and then it's there's no money involved. I mean, there is money because the guys who play well benefit from it with sponsorship and whatever. But in in essence, it's all about winning for you know for your team and. Um, you know, I, I love the President's Cup. I'm sorry we only won once. Um, it should, point, point should be modified a little bit to make it a little closer. So it would be more along the lines of the Ryder Cup. We have a few more points in the President's Cup, which always favors a stronger team. But anyway, you know, I, I think the Ryder Cup is, I, I love watching it now. I really do. And the President's Cup this year, obviously, Trevor Emelman, the captain. Yeah. Have you been speaking to him? Has he been tapping into your knowledge? <laughs> No, no, no. You know, it, look, Trevor's got a much better handle on the game, the modern game, than I have. Um, you know, I'd certainly help him if he wanted me to. But you know, he's got his he's got his own uh, ideas and his own uh, way of, of you know setting the whole thing up. Um, and I think he'll do a great job. Um, it, it's it's a tall order to beat America yeah. on the home turf. I can yeah. tell you that. Yeah. It's very very hard. So uh, and I but I'd love to see him pull it off. I, that needs to be competitive. It needs to be more competitive, the President's Cup. That's what everybody watches the Ryder Cup because we know come Sunday, it's going to come down to one match on the 17th hole or the 16th hole on Sunday. And, you know, it culminates in this huge uh, excitement. And so we haven't quite had that at the President's Cup. We've had it a few times. Korea, we had a great shot at it. Um, but even when we won in, in, uh, at Royal Melbourne in 98, we waxed him. It wasn't exciting. It was over. I think I was the third or fourth group out on the Sunday, and I won the point that took us, uh, that won us that, uh, that that Presence Cup. But we ended up winning by 11 points or whatever it was, so it wasn't exciting. So it needs to be more closely contested to get people to watch it. And, and I think it will be. You know, we're getting stronger and stronger as an international team, but playing against the might of the U.S. in, in America is very, very hard. Nick, just to, just to finish off, you know, when I do travel overseas and the name Nick Price comes up or when I'm traveling around South Africa and the name Nick Price comes up, you never hear, you never ever hear a bad thing about Nick Price. No. You you are genuinely one of the really great guys on tour. You've had a fantastic career. You've put more back into the game than perhaps you got out of the game and you got a huge amount out of the game. I and I, on behalf of South African golfers and Bobrian golfers, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Nick Price. Thank you, Dale. That, that means an awful lot coming from you, honestly. And, and, you know, I lost my dad when I was really young. I was 10 years old. And uh, I think my brothers 
my mother and my brother helped me, you know, to to guide me and and show me what was right. But I think all of, of everything, you know, you have to be appreciative of what you have in life. And and I'm not I don't want to philosophize, but I was always very appreciative of what, you know, the friendships that I had. They were very important to me. Um, and uh, I've had a great time. I really have, and I'm still enjoying you know playing golf, although I can't play like I used to, which is very irritating. <laughs> well, like we said at the beginning of the podcast, when you played well, you were South African, and when you played badly, you were Zimbabwean. So we've always kind of claimed you. <laughs> awesome chat with Nick and Dale. You're so right. He's achieved so much, not only on the golf course, but off it as well. Nice to chat to Nick on the long and the short of it today. Brought to you by Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate. Yeah, for access to unparalleled living experience, visit blairathol.coza and make an appointment to take the first steps in realizing your dream home. Blair Athol offers the ultimate and secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. World-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness center, spa and restaurant facilities. On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanseria Smart City. So why not visit BlairAthol.coza and take those first steps. Come home to Blair Athol, an unparalleled living experience.